This is Energy Voice Out Loud, leading the global energy conversation. I'm Alice Thomas, and welcome to our podcast. I'm joined this week by digital journalist Hamish Penman and our Africa and LNG editor Ed Reed. Ed, we spoke last week about the bunting going up ahead of the, the coronation. I'm picturing, like, now, as we record, a, a, a giant Great British Bake Off in London. Is that... Is that about accurate? I mean, things are things are really bunting off, as they say. Uh, there's a preponderance of enormous flags, buntings lining the streets. Uh, there's a lot of uh, people tugging their forelocks. So, I mean, I think we're really we're really getting in the mood here. I mean, wow, that sounds all of that sounds uh, exceptional. I'm looking forward to seeing uh, seeing that pay off on Monday. Um, yeah, I mean, not to pull the curtain back too much, but we're taking kind of. Uh, holidays, you know, bank holidays for the coronation. They gave us a, um, our HR system, gave everyone else the option to do so on on the team, as far as I'm aware, but not myself. Uh, and I was kind of concerned that they consider me to be some sort of anti-monarchist or something, which is maybe not, not a great look. Um, but yeah, there we are. Uh, so lots going on again this week, but let's let's start with Ed, I think. Um, Ed, we hear, we hear quite a lot about NGOs suing oil companies and like, but Rarely do we see an oil firm sue an activist group. Yes, so it was, uh, as you say, it's it's sort of been a long time coming, uh, but it's it's certainly been sort of in the works. So 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 to you know cast your mind back to uh, November of last year, it was uh, it was a big time. I think it was it, COP COP was going on. Um, you know, we were very much in the environmental mood. Greenpeace France, obviously, always in the environmental mood, um, and they published a piece of work uh, about Total Energies, saying essentially that the uh, the energy company, oil company, uh, had uh, misled about its actual uh, carbon emissions. Um, so. The so the 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 year they used was 2019. So 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 Total uh, reports emissions of 455 million tons, and Greenpeace estimated it at 1.64 billion. So uh, about about three times higher. Um, as you can imagine, this uh, this 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 riled up the uh, denizens of uh, La Défense uh, quite uh, significantly. Uh, they came out swinging, and you know, obviously, at the time, there were sort of you know all those sort of statements that suggest that they're thinking about taking legal action, reserving their rights to you know, and that sort of thing. And you know, the, this is it. Now they've kind of dropped the uh, dropped the bombshell. Um, so uh, the court proceedings, uh, legal hit proceedings, rather kicked off last week with Total naming uh, naming Greenpeace and saying that um, that that. Greenpeace Greenpeace had been misleading in, in in terms of how it had reported. What what Total wants is uh, for Greenpeace to uh, to take down this report from their website, which uh, checking uh, checking this week is still there as we speak. Um, obviously, we will see how much longer that uh, stays up, depending obviously on how the how the, how the court feels about these things. Uh, and they want symbolic damages of one euro, um, which obviously uh, kind of making the point that uh, that they really just want to sort of try and set the record straight, or at least that's what uh, Total's trying to say. Greenpeace, on the other hand, has said this uh, lawsuit is an attempt to silence critics, that it's uh, sort of retaliatory, that it's uh, it's a slap lawsuit. I, I don't know if you're if you're familiar with this term. It's S L A P P. I wasn't until I read your piece, and I was like. 
Uh, uh, what? And it's like, there we are. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad to have opened your eyes, uh, Alistair. Uh, so essentially, a, a slap lawsuit is intended to deter further criticism. So typically, you see it um, of, say, you know, a, a billionaire, you know, uh, picks some sort of niggling point to take a publication or an NGO to court in an attempt and in an attempt to sort of draw out the legal fees to the extent that the NGO or, or whoever it has no choice but to, to fold and sort of say, you know, this is this is too much. This is too much for us. It's got to be said, Greenpeace uh, is not saying that. Uh, the uh, the quote from the head of uh, Greenpeace France uh, was essentially, we'll see you in court, buddy. Uh, so the stage has been set um, for a sort of a battle royale in terms of, I suppose, you know, sort of on the one hand, sort of, you know, quite sort of, you know, interesting ideas around uh, around criticism about about how we should hold those in power to account and on the other hand you know quite sort of uh, technical prosaic things how do you count carbon emissions total says that it's it's following a methodology set down uh, and sort of enshrined in in sort of you know sort of standardized operations they've uh, their their auditors have signed off i think it's ey uh, and 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 Greenpeace obviously saying, look, we've looked at your operations and come to a radically different uh, different number. So there we go. We'll see it in court. Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds. I, I guess maybe to take that see you in court angle first. It doesn't sound like we're we're heading towards a settlement here. Uh, Ed. It seems like that the, the day in court will actually happen based on, as you pointed out, the rhetoric from Greenpeace in in reply. Yeah, indeed, indeed. I mean, I think I suppose if we take what Total has said at sort of face value, they just want Greenpeace to. Uh, uh, to take the, uh, the, the the that report off their website, um, and I think you know, kind of clearly, this is uh, this is a sort of a fantastic opportunity, isn't it, for uh, for, for kind of Greenpeace to uh, rally its base, which I suppose is why Total is saying, look, we just want you to take down this report and give us sort of symbolic damages of one euro, um, because Total obviously is trying to sort of walk a sort of a fine line between saying, you know, we're trying to protect our reputations on the one hand, but on the other hand. Uh, not, you know, sort of um, come down too hard on on sort of, you know, critics because obviously that's not a great look. Um, so yes, it's 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 quite a sort of a tangled, uh, tangled, uh, a difficult line that that, that Total's had to walk. But obviously, you know, in 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 many ways, it, it really plays to, to to Greenpeace's favor, right? Like, I mean, I imagine uh, a lot of people probably have gone to their website this week to say, "Hey, what's this report about?" should i read it you know what's 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 this going on so i mean yeah it's it's that tricky thing isn't it like how do you how do you take action against criticism in this sort of public sphere and i think you know we've sort of seen it playing out everywhere haven't we i mean it's it's the same it's the same here uh, and, I, and i imagine you know we're speaking the day that uh that that, that shell's having its agm i i I, I'm, I'm imagining that there are going to be protests at Shell's AGM. Uh, obviously, that feels like a pretty sort of much of a foregone conclusion. And it's always this thing, isn't it, about how much do they sort of allow these kind of activists to sort of stand up and say their piece? How much do they say, you know, get the security guards to haul them out? Uh, because frankly, having sort of uh, environmental protesters sort of hauled out, dragged out by their hair, is never a good look for a sort of a, a caring, sharing oil company. Yeah, you know, sh- yeah, Shell's uh, Q1s today. Uh, I think AGM is in a, a couple of weeks, but. Oh. Apologies. No, no, you're fine. Um, I mean, the, the point, I guess, speaking of Shell and, and clearly the, the pertinent points here, uh, you know, the scope three debate really uh, seeming to come to a head here. I mean, we've, we've speaking of Shell, we've obviously had uh, them in court versus the 
The, the Dutch version of Friends of the Earth, I believe it is, I think in March they kind of ruled out setting targets to cut emissions in, in absolute terms from their customers' products, i.e. Scope 3. The vast majority of emissions from these companies uh, would fall, obviously, under the Scope 3 bracket. And, and as far as, you know, Total Energies goes, you know, um, so financially powerful. Um, and yeah, I, I, I hear what you're saying about the intimidation thing, and it's certainly not a good look if you're seeking to silence critics. Uh, I suppose that symbolic one euro goes a long way to try to assuage those concerns um, to, to an extent. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, do you win hearts and minds by taking this kind of action? Has it gotten to such a stage now that they feel cornered and have to take this kind of action when they feel that things have been misrepresented by a powerful kind of NGO group? I don't know, but it'll be certainly interesting to see how this plays out. Yeah, yeah, indeed. And I think it, it is that question about when you sort of step in and say, you know, I've got to sue. Because obviously it's, it, it does feel like a kind of like a weapon of last resort, doesn't it? Because, you know, obviously it's it's great for Greenpeace to say, look, we're, we're sort of under attack. You know, uh, make sure to increase your monthly donations so we can carry on kind of fighting the good fight. But obviously, I suppose, you know, that, that, that's that difference, isn't it, between, you know, what Total's saying it's emitting and what Greenpeace is estimating. And I think, you know, one of the points that sort of Total's raised is that uh, they have a sort of a legal duty as a, you know, as a sort of a reporting body to shareholders. And that's the thing to, to you know, be correct in this. And obviously... Given uh, the number of sort of, you know, climate change focused sort of legislation around the world, um, you know, there is a kind of a question of sort of legal compliance, isn't there? And I suspect that, you know, Total feels it's either got to, you know, sort of try and stave off uh, Greenpeace's claims or, you know, take some sort of additional action, which, you know, at this point when we're talking energy security, when we're seeing, you know, this real sort of return of, uh, of oil and gas in the last sort of, you know, 12 months, it's it's a, it would be a hard one to do, and, and obviously you know Total's got you know expansion plans, you know. So this week it's been talking about a big new uh, FPSO project off Angola. It's you know looking at projects in Suriname. It's looking at Uganda. I mean you know these are projects that obviously you know the world still seems to need oil, and that's obviously the kind of the calculation, but will come with sort of pretty significant carbon emissions. So I think you know it's 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 a kind of a it's a case of sort of. Uh, I suppose I don't want to say existential, but I feel it's 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 it feels like it cuts pretty deep for Total. Yeah, no, certainly. Well, we'll keep a close eye on that. But thank you for the for the analysis, Ed. And uh, well, speaking of emissions, next up it's Hamish with a big project to decarbonize the North Sea. I'm Andrew Dykes, content editor at Energy Voice and host of the Mega Hour, a podcast box set series brought to you by Energy Voice in paid partnership with BDO. This series sees us examine the state of energy storage technologies and their wide-ranging effects on energy markets. So far over the course of our series, we've looked a lot at the big picture. Grid-scale batteries, seasonal storage, and the policy and investment landscape underpinning major developments across the country. In our latest episode, we're drilling right down to the small scale to focus on where we're most likely to interact with storage technology in our daily lives, in our homes. As home energy systems become increasingly smarter, Storage is set to play a greater role in how we use and consume energy, and will hopefully not only help us use greater amounts of renewables, but may even save us some money. So join me, my roster of BDO co-hosts, and a range of diverse guests from across the energy and climate sector to learn more. Look for the Megawatt Hour on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or in your regular Energy Voice Out Loud feed, wherever you get your podcasts.
Okay, Hamish, uh, Sorelian Winds, uh, a company that EV readers uh, would hopefully be familiar with by now, um, but making some big waves with their decarbonisation plans. Big, big waves here. Intog is already starting to bear some fruits and, and just a few weeks on from when the results were actually published, I think, was it the end of March or something like that? So, so this has come around pretty quickly. But yeah, Cerulean Winds, they've been on the PR offensive quite a lot. I think it would be fair to say they've been on a lot of panels. Um, I've kind of got their name out there ahead of Intog and, and they've wasted no time now um, in publishing their plans for a £20 billion North Sea Renewables grid that will provide the answer to many operators' electrification conundrum. So at twenty billion, it will be among the UK's largest infrastructure investment projects, and according to independent assessments, it could create as many as ten thousand jobs in the UK and add over twelve billion to the UK economy. So essentially, this NRG will be the result of three hundred and thirty square mile offshore wind sites, each containing hundreds of floating turbines, producing many, many gigawatts of of green energy. Once it's operational, oil and gas platforms will be able to hook into the system as and when they're ready, meaning they can swap out their diesel generation for green energy. And in kind of further phrases of the projects, there's plans to put cables down to England. I think there was one up to to Shetland or Orkney as well and to Europe as well so that any of this um, surplus green energy can go into the grid and help to decarbonise homes and transport and the like. So this will obviously play a huge part in helping the North Sea to hit its net zero by 2050 targets. Um, but I think the thing that will grab most people's attentions, as it did mine, is the jobs pledge or kind of more specifically the local content pledge. Now, I've done a couple of panels with Dan Jackson, who is Cerulean's co-founder um, in about the last year or so, and he's always been really kind of upfront, honest and, and quite bullish about the fact that he wants this project to be a, a break from the past. He's acknowledged that for all the turbines that there are spinning in Scotland's waters, there's sod all really to show for it in terms of an industrial benefit. And he said on numerous occasions that he wants that to change. Um, and so far anyway, he's been been true to his word. So Cerulean is aiming to build all of the floating foundations for the hundreds of turbines that will comprise the NSRG in the UK. And going beyond that, they want to use local content for this project wherever possible. So that's where the majority of these 10,000 jobs will come from. Most will be in the construction phase and there will obviously be a share um, of that 10,000 figure that will be wrapped up in operations and maintenance too. Um, most of those will be in Scotland, um, given the turbines will be in the central North Sea. So I think the other particularly notable thing here is the time frame in which Cerulean is aiming to have this massive project up and running. So they're aiming for first power in 2028, so five years from now. That will take place before work ramps up on pretty much all of the Scotland projects, certainly before any of them reach full power, I think. Um, for that, for the supply chain, I think that's that's crucial. Um, it will allow companies, ports, harbours, vessel operators to, to get their ducks in a row, gain some experience on offshore wind projects, um, which many have ambitions to move into but might not have worked on yet. Um, so that experience will be vital. The only query I would have is that given the lack of offshore winds um, building or development that's actually gone on on Scottish soil in the last 10, 20 years, this isn't a small project. This is still huge. This is still hundreds and hundreds of turbines, so it's still far bigger than anything anyone has done before here. First power by 2028 as well. I mean, 
I mean, all, all power to them, no pun intended. I think it'd be really unfair to classify it in the way that I, I'm teetering around here and that, you know, in the past we've had big promise projects, as I like to call them, where things don't manifest. Now, these guys, they've got the project experience. They have got big players on their side, um, as Hamish points out in his, his article. So I think it'd be quite cynical to suggest it's not going to happen. I think it will happen. Um, I think the, the question is, as you point out, Hamish, is really around the, the time frame and getting building up that capacity uh, for this local content ambitions in such a tight time frame. Maybe that's a bit cynical, um, but it just seems to me that that's, that's really not there right now and relying on quite a lot to develop um, between now and, well, I mean, if it's first power by 2028, you know, when, when's manufacturing getting underway? Do you know what I mean? So it seems like a vast project. Um, you know, both those guys, um, was it Dan Jackson and, and, and Mark Dixon, I mean, they've got the kind of experience to deliver this kind of thing. Um, but where are we with, uh, I guess, getting operators on board as well, Hamish, because it, it, it takes two to tango and we need to have, uh, people willing to sign up their oil platforms to this kind of decarbonization efforts as well. Yeah, I know as part of um, Cerulean's Intog bid, of which it won three sites, so those will be the three wind farms, they had a number of letter of intent from operators that that signal that they would be keen to to link into this, this power network as and when it becomes available. And I know in the release they said they're going to be offering flexible power purchase agreements so that it won't tie operators to a fixed time that they have to um, wire into this grid, they will be able to do it as and kind of when their platform is ready because there'll obviously be a lot of brownfield modifications that will need to go on on the oil and gas side as well as all the work that needs to go into getting the turbines out. So I think the work really does start in earnest now in terms of actually pinning these operators down, those that said they would be interested and perhaps getting PPAs drawn up, although that might be a bit bit soon there might be other some other kind of contract that they're able to sign that would that would bring them on board but we kind of hear from the supply chain time and time again that they are ready to go that they're they're just waiting for for these projects to to kind of come to fruition and for agreements to be signed um the the example of Balmoral for example who said at the offshore wind conference that they've they've got money ready to go on different types of um, factories for building components of floating wind what they were calling for a standardization of turbines now if you assume that all of these hundreds of turbines will be the same then that that is perhaps the first domino that they need to fall to do this i also think that perhaps on the on the time frame they might have to do it within this time frame because if they get later then they've got 17 was it no, no 20 now scotland projects that are going to be competing for the same resources so if, if it comes to that then not to mention all the stuff in ostend in europe as well right yeah so if it so if you then hit that inevitable bottleneck then then you think you would question whether the project is going to be able to move forward if it's able to do it before then i think it stands a much better chance i think that's a, an excellent point yeah fantastic two quick questions uh hamish you keep on saying intog what does that mean and also uh in terms of sort of power prices i mean you know obviously i suppose you know as a, as, as an alternative it's it's cleaner obviously that's that's more attractive but do, do, do the economics stack up i take the power prices piece first enough i don't know we'd have to go to a, a ppa expert um to see whether the prices stack up. I know increasingly there are wind farms that are now being built almost solely with PPAs, or I know that Murray West is the first that offshore one that will be built with the majority of its output 
um, and finance coming from PPAs. So it's, it, it certainly seems to be the kind of more established way of doing things. And it means that reduces the need for a, a contract for difference, which I think is a big thing because there can be a lot of red tape to get through there. In talk, uh, innovation targeted oil and gas. Uh, it was a leasing round that started last year. We had the results of in March. So take Scotland, which we've discussed many times on here, and I think we're all quite well versed in. It's basically Scotland, but with for smaller projects that are going to um, kind of prime the supply chain pump and for projects that are going to decarbonize oil and gas. So off the top of my head, I think there were 14 or so, maybe a few up or down, I can't exactly remember, but they raised about 260 million pounds. And yeah, these are going to be the ones that come before Scotland to try and get the supply chain ready and raring to go. He's fallen to oil and gas acronym bingo there, but I think we just about got through it. Um, Okay, uh, well, thanks, Hamish. Uh, We'll be watching Cerulean clearly with great interest. Um, So that's a piece of the opportunity for offshore wind, but what about getting it through to the workforce? We'll explore that right after this. The UK government has set out its overarching plan to get the country to net zero. But what are the next steps we should be taking along the way? In the fifth episode of Net Zero Nudge, Energy Voice, in association with EY, drills into some of the questions around energy storage. As renewable energy becomes an increasingly important share of the grid, and we dial down hydrocarbons such as gas and coal. Balancing out the peaks and troughs of generation and demand will be essential. In this episode, James Nicholson, partner at EY Parthenon, and Alex O'Kineda, CEO and founder of Gore Street Capital, talk over some of the opportunities and challenges around energy storage. While we've been where we are now, and where we're going. That's Net Zero Nudge, Episode 5 on Energy Storage, out now. Okay, so we've been following news around development of a so-called skills passport for some time now for oil and gas workers to move into offshore wind. And a quick a quick recap of what that is, essentially part of the big barrier for that shift into renewables, is this huge kind of training costs, you know, as an example, let's take a a rope access technician on an oil platform, would perform ostensibly a very similar job with the same skills on a wind turbine, but they would need to pay for retraining to get certifications to work in the offshore wind sector to do that. Because so many of these workers are contractors, self-employed, it would often be out of their own pockets. These are not cheap training courses. Um, a skills passport is seeking to eliminate that duplication, that unnecessary duplication in, in, I probably think it's fair to say, in most cases, and get into a place where they can kind of transfer over more freely. Now, Tim Pick, the UK offshore wind champion, he delivered his kind of state of the industry report last month, obviously had plenty of issues discussed, but we picked up a line in that outlining a, a lack of alignment between the oil and gas and offshore wind skills bodies in terms of getting the skills passport together. Um, so I was speaking to RMT's uh, Jake Malloy, the union organizer, um, again last month off the back of that. He's on the steering committee for the skills passport. He's also on the Scottish government's Just Transition Commission. Uh, the question was basically, what's happening? What's the holdup? Um, and you know, not, um, not ambiguous about it. He was very clear. He said that Global Wind Organization, that's the skills body for the wind industry, was resisting the idea, keen to push its own brand and standards, not accepting the idea. Um, Unite Scotland's secretary, Pat Rafferty, went a a good bit further. He said GWO were creating roadblocks to this passport and even said they'd get government involved if they don't wise up effectively. So quite strong stuff. I'll talk about GWO's response, but I think it's worth noting that these are union reps. They're not oil companies, they're not wind companies, they're 
their interest is in the workforce making this shift over. So I think that perhaps lends a bit more uh, credence to the comments. In reply, what were GWO saying? Um, you know, pointing out they represent a broad coalition of employers, fair. Um, want to, they do want to see the oil and gas industry make a successful transition into renewables and be able to apply those skills with a system of recognition that applies across different technologies and international borders. I think that's kind of setting out the fact that there's a lot of parties here and a lot of different um, factors to consider. Um, but in a bottom line, they want to make sure there's a system that works for all skilled people to move, you know, in into and out of renewables. Um, so that to me, well, that was the statement they provided. It didn't necessarily align with the, the quite strong rhetoric from the, the union bosses in, in my view, but nonetheless highlighting some of the convoluted issues here. Um, so the passport's still to be delivered this year. Um, clearly all isn't quite well there um, and something needs to change, but yeah, that's the state of things at the moment. I mean, people have certainly been, or workers have certainly been hanging on long enough for it. I think it, the timeline seems to keep getting kicked down the road slightly. We were looking at it last year potentially and then start of this year and I think it'd be fair to say the start of this year is now behind us. It's over. Yeah. yeah so I mean, there's a I'm at the Southern North Sea conference this this month. Yeah, this month, um, and there is a specific Opito panel discussion on on the skills passport. So I'll be quite interested to see what comes out of that. It'll be certainly one I'll be attending. And if anyone's at the Southern North Sea conference, please do get in touch. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's been a long time coming, and you hope it would make a lot of difference. I see it was discussed in Holyrood yesterday as a means of helping. I think the one problem is it does seem to be seen as this kind of manna from heaven panacea that will cure a lot of a lot of problems, but I, which it might well cure quite a lot, but I, I think perhaps there is there is um danger of, of overstating its importance, maybe. Yeah, I think I think that's probably fair. I mean it is just one piece of a, a wider puzzle. Um that puzzle course being the opportunity being provided to even do this in the first place um you know if if it all goes well with you know cerulean wins you know for example um especially in the timelines they're looking at then that opportunity should be there you know this all needs to happen in parallel with you know manufacturing port infrastructure being in place investment plans being in place and timelines not being kicked down the road um you know but there are some so there are some real quite striking projections i think from rgu last year robert gordon university about the investment levels needed you know if we can get xyz investment in, in the aberdeen area as an example that's going to create this opportunity for the jobs in oil and gas uh, to switch into renewables if that investment and that you know the stuff we've talked about doesn't happen we're going to see we are going to see a decline in jobs in oil and gas and there won't be that uh, renewable space which by renewables, we primarily mean offshore wind at the moment anyway, um, to, to pick it up. So absolutely right. It is just one piece of the puzzle, um, but it needs to be there. You know, we can't have a situation where this work is now coming through and the guys and, and girls who want to work in offshore wind are, are finding themselves, you know, kind of really handicapped. You know, we, we see the offshore survival training costs. We see the, you know, qual the certs costs. These are, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of pounds we're talking about out of someone's pocket. And, you know, in a situation where people can you know, get a better salary, in many cases, working uh, onshore than offshore at the moment, you don't really want a situation where people are just thinking, well, that's just way too much hassle. Uh, I'll go tr 
uh, try a different industry altogether. I want to say a little bit about Jake Malloy as well. Um, 26 years as a union rep, uh, 17 years before that offshore, stepping down as of uh, last week, uh, replaced by Anne Joss of the rail sector. Jake uh, Malloy will be a familiar name for uh, readers of Energy Voice. Every, you know, very frequently we need, we do need people to stick their heads above the parapet. You know, we, we do hear these HSE issues all the time. But quite frankly, because people, you know, work for um, individual companies, um, and, 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 you know, they don't want to be seen to be calling out these things, um, I think is a fair reflection of the industry um, if they're not involved in them or if it's someone else's business. I know that somebody might say, oh, well, Linfrey talks about safety all the time. It doesn't necessarily call out individual um, uh, issues going wrong, I think would be a, a, fair, a fair comment. Um, Jake kind of sees it as his job in terms of helping keep the workforce safe. To, to, to make comments about these things as they happen um, and, you know, kind of keep the industry's feet to the fire. And I think that's been deeply appreciated. You know, we've, we've got on our LinkedIn loads of comments of appreciation for them. Even people who I'm sure have locked uh, horns with them in the past, one point or the other. Um, one of the comments, Steve Ray of Step Change and Safety, Piper Alpha Survivor, described it as uh, big rig boots for him to fill for him. Um, and yeah, he's off to spend more time with the grandkids, his children and their families. You can do a spot of fishing, I think, but uh, yeah, he's not retiring. Um, we don't know where he's off to next, but it's a fantastic shift. So all the best uh, to Jake for that. I was going to say, no, thanks, thanks Jake. It's been, it's, been, it's been emotional. You've uh, helped elevate some of our stories from mediocre ones to great ones. So yeah, big boots to fill, I'd echo those comments. Absolutely. Yeah, he's the, the, John, Will, the John Williams of our Steven Spielberg. I, I don't know. So with that, that is it for this latest episode of Energy Voice Out Loud. Thank you to Ed and to Hamish for joining me. I've been Alistair Thomas, and thanks for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com Sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Outloud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Outloud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.